Hello and welcome to another episode of Research Radio, a podcast of the Economic and Political Weekly. I'm Johan and on today's episode, we have a three-way discussion on the theme of race, caste and class. In her book Caste: The Origins of Our Discontents, Isabel Wilkerson looks to the Indian caste system to provide the vocabulary to expose the invisible substructure underlying race in America. Wilkerson draws comparisons between racism in America and caste in India in the way certain logics and practices such as purity and pollution and endogamy are used to establish one's status, access to resources and humanity. In this episode we have Professor Gopal Guru in conversation with Professor P Thirumal and Professor R Srivatsan discussing Isabella Wilkerson's book and the overlaps and exclusions between race, caste and class. Now let me introduce our guests. Professor P Thirumal from the Department of Communications University of Hyderabad teaches courses relating to theoretical history of media with reference to modernity and also deep time. His research and writings focus on the cultural histories of Northeast India, including caste embodiment studies, specifically in relation to discriminatory practices of Dalit Bahujans in higher education institutions in India. Professor R. Srivatsan is a political theorist with specific interests in development, culture, welfare, and healthcare. His books include titles such as Seva, Savior, and the State. essays on caste politics tribal welfare and capitalist development and history of development thought he was co-editor of medico friend circle bulletin his research interests are the processes of development in politics and government in healthcare visual culture and in the past decade in religion he is also an occasional translator of telugu dalit prose and poetry and finally we have a very own professor gopal guru editor of epw who will take over the proceedings for today over to you professor guru uh, thank you joanna i take this particular pleasure to invite uh, both professor srivastan and professor tirumal for a uh, discussion on a very important uh, book by isabella wilkerson both the authors uh, uh, who have contributed to uh, epw on the issue that we are going to discuss during the i would uh, come back in the end on with my own observations uh, so i will uh, invite uh, our guests to make their reflections on the book and also outside the book both of you are making different points but at some level also you converge uh, but i think it's better that uh, uh, srivatsan starts and then uh, and and thiru follows Shivats, go ahead. Okay. Is, that, is the order fine, both of you? I, if you want me to, I can go ahead. Okay, great. So thank you so much, Shivats. So please go ahead, and then you can make initial remarks for about five, five to seven minutes, and then Thiru will take over. If I remember reading uh, Isabel Wilkerson's book, it was almost a traumatic experience because the absolute force with which she was writing, and given my own social vocation as. not belonging to a community which is discriminated against you feel the pressure of writing actually acting i felt that pressure acting on me directly and it's a wonderfully researched book i think uh, pointing to the caste hierarchical dimension of racial oppression is again very useful uh 
it's not simply the same as it was when it was proposed, proposed first in the 40s and 50s by Gunnar Myrdal and others. And in this repetition in the 21st century, she brings new insight to bear on the struggles against race and caste oppression. Now, in my view, because of a very immediate uh, political agenda, a differentiation between caste as a hierarchical system of oppression and race, which we call the skin affair, is a little simplified. Race is more than a skin affair. It goes into anthropometry, eugenics till 1950s, and for example, the study propensity of towards certain diseases, medical effectiveness of drugs, and health prospects today. Caste is also more than purely hierarchical oppression that Wilkerson described it as. It is also a form of knowledge. For example, the caste and tribes of India series, the caste and tribes of Bengal, the caste and tribes of Nizam Dominion, of the United Provinces, etc. And all these are how to understand better so that one administers better. Now, there is also another discriminative study of difference, which will be called ethnic, where the difference being studied is culture and social, cultural and social, not physical or genetic. Both caste and race participate and spill into studies of ethnicity and culture. But all these, of course, constitute aspects of the domain of anthropology as a discipline. Ethnicity, of course, is also a source of hierarchical oppression and dis discrimination. Example, the oppression and discrimination against Muslims in India are of an ethnic nature. And it's also against Pakis in England, which is about both India and Pakistan. And if you take the example of the 19th century fair soap ad, which I hope we can see later, where race and ethnicity flow together in one marvelous stream in the copy, ad copy, and I quote, the first step towards lightening the white man's burden is to, through teaching the virtues of cleanliness. Pears soap is a potent factor in brightening the dark corners of the earth as civilization advances. While among the culture of all nations, it holds the highest place. It is the ideal toilet soap, end quote. And tucked away at the right bottom side of the image is a hierarchical dimension of caste, as Wilkerson describes it, in the native crouching before the erect white man. Now, implicit in the idea of the white man's burden is the notion of the European master race, which gave it a right to rule and educate the world. Class differentiation, differentiation of course, is later development in the history of oppression and exploitation. It is not necessarily discriminative of existing cultures, though it can be, but it produces a working class culture. And capitalism is a bit chameleon-like. It can work alongside slavery in the U.S. and it can work against ma the master race and the idea of with, and for the idea of capitalist development in the third world after World War II. Now, both capitalist culture and liberal ideology work by promising freedom to everybody and the right to become rich and join the upper class. And of course, that's a dream, and most people are actually exploited in the name of that promise. And Marx has described wage labor often as, in ultimate effect, not too different from slavery. So there are obviously differences, but in terms of the sheer exploitation and oppression, it's not very different. Now, none of these categories are watertight compartments, and they bleed in, into each other. And if we think of our life as under a big circus tent or a canopy, 
there are four poles, four tent poles, and one of them is race, the other is caste, the third is ethnicity, and the fourth is class. And these tent poles are the force are the force and knowledge supports that cover our existence today. I'm of course leaving the term gender out of here for the time being, but this leaving aside may be deeply symptomatic. But one cannot, however, miss the gender in the term master race or white man's burden. To me, race and ethnicity have the potential for becoming useful forms of thinking about the other once caste, oppression, and the hierarchical dimension is removed. Would it be possible to comprehend differences in genetics or in race without fear, oppression, and exploitation? To comprehend ethnic difference and diversity without torture or massacre? We don't know, but the possibility exists and would be useful, not only to celebrate differences, for example, through Padma Lakshmi's latest Nat Geo series, which is Taste the Nation, but also to know how is one is more vulnerable than the other. Can you take care, think of healthcare differently? This is a possibility one has to think about. And equality need not be identity. It is thinkable and doable that one has a Dalit or African-American culture without being unequal to the white American or Brahminical culture. Thinking in this way always brings a breath of fresh air of freedom rather than suffocation of trying to imitate the idiocies of the dominant culture. To be discriminating is the essence of the human. But there is the possibility that being discriminating and discriminative need not be discriminatory. And this possibility is not imaginary, it's very real already. But can it be separated from its seemingly conjoined twin of oppression, torture, and hatred is the question history has to answer. The problem of class, of course, cannot be solved by these moves. Thank you for inviting me to share my views here. Uh, thank you, Srivatsan, for your very precise and concise uh, reflections on the on, on the topic. Yeah. Now, uh, may I invite uh, uh, Professor Thiruman to uh, offer his own comments on on the other subject. Thiru. Uh, uh, thank you, Professor Gopal Guru. Uh, here are my uh, remarks. Uh, on the book and also the theme, um, uh, actually participated in a similar event at Anveshi along with Srivats and others on discussing this work. Uh, the agenda for today, as I understand, is to move beyond the usual connection that we build around caste race or race caste relations and how they are studied. I thought that was precisely the burden of Isabel's text. Uh, I would want to believe that the text. Uh, wanted to uh, suggest the generative or the life-giving power of caste in relation to the generative power of race across and within historical epochs. This has been sturdier, more, uh, uh, more solid in, in, in some sense. Now, uh, I would like to understand uh, uh, the, uh, the terms of today's conversation as something that we need to beyond, move beyond disciplinary trajectories and look at colonial past as more of accidents, and although this accident could be an extraordinary event that affected how we understood and experienced caste. 
uh, I would think that is a dominant way of looking at caste is something that uh, uh, that that seems to uh, be challenged by this particular text. Now, disciplines themselves are historically mediated rationalities, and they rarely capture the deeply sedimented residues of historical societies like ours, which have such a great temporal uh, depth. Now, colonialism is an extraordinary event that affected caste and in a way also gave birth to race and also class. Uh, I'm not going to talk much about uh, uh, class as much as I'm going to connect race and caste. Uh, but India has had extraordinary events like this before and colonialism may be treated as an accident rather than an event that completely eroded the enduring reality and purchase of caste across and within epochs. If I can use a very uh, outmoded word, essence, it, it did not really erode the essence of caste, colonialism. And, and that seems to be uh, a certain, uh, I mean, it is suggested in the text, although it's not really, I mean, it, it doesn't work uh, uh, in, 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 the, in the narrative, uh, in the narrative, you don't find that, but it looks as if she's implying that. Now, uh, as against that, race and class are more historical and therefore contingent truths. And this is uh, something which is, uh, which, 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 which seems to be, uh, which she seems to be suggesting and uh, which I would also think, uh, or I would like to interpret uh, her work as, uh, as suggesting that race and class are more historical and therefore contingent truths. And one of the ways of saying that is the most significant feature of the shifts in ideas between the 16th and 19th centuries is that racism not only runs counter to the more to the three major religious traditions which have dominated the West, it runs counter to the doctrines of man still being articulated within the 17th century, given the Enlightenment tradition to some extent. Now, as against that, caste is a more enduring truth. It's, it's, it's there for almost three and a half millennia. And I would also like to uh, add that Brahmins have existed as a historically continuous community for, for that very long period. Uh, in that sense, I would like to, uh, you know, uh, kind of recall what M.N. Srinivas uh, actually implies when he makes a distinction between what he calls uh, uh, a, a, a temporality that is associated with the Sanskritization and uh, and uh, the temporality that is associated with Brahmanism, Brahmanization, what he calls uh, a Brahmanization for him is associated with Vedic ritual uh, past. Now, in that in that sense, whether you take the discursive intelligibility or the uh, or the non-discursive comportment of the Brahmin culture, it's related to an authentic, not a not essentially Indian past, but also a very authentic Indic past. Hence, the historical anchor is on Indic rather than Indian or colonial pasts of media. And I, I'm not very sure if you have adequate tools to understand uh, the, uh, the suggestion that he's making about an authentic temporality uh, that Brahma, Brahm, Brahmanization, the model for Brahm, uh, the Vijas or is a Vedic ritual or Attic past. Uh, whereas for the others, it is the uh, Sanskritization that is not a... Uh, authentic temporality. Now, uh, I would see uh, not that Wilkerson has gone through all this, but this is the background through which Wilkerson is examining the relationship between caste and race. Uh, the, uh, the ubiquity 
and the ever-replenishing cultural authority of caste needs to be understood as necessary to providing a blueprint and roadmap for understanding race. Uh, uh, the, uh, what, she, what, she, what, uh, what she's trying to do is that she holds caste in a very primary relationship to race. Uh, and I also feel, I mean, this is looking at uh, the continuous writing of Gopal Guru, uh, 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 Sundar Sarekai, and various others. Uh, there seems to be a certain way that uh, caste is not a very authentic subject for understanding India. You know, uh, it it is it is it is something that. Uh, 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 that seems to be the burden of the dominant tradition and uh, the vitality of caste, which uh, uh, Guru and uh, Sundar Sarukai and a few others have been working, don't seem to be an interesting object of study. And here the vitality seems to be a very important character. And that vitality would mean the vitality of caste, that is the life generating capacity of caste, is much stronger than the life-generating power of race or even class, and it is uh, the, uh, the, uh, the 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 promise of this book tends to be uh, uh, you know uh, is about this kind of uh, unraveling of the absurdity and uh, a certain kind of uh, you know uh, it, we talk about thought, but. You know, uh, uh, I would like to make make a distinction between uh, to think about something and what makes us think about something. Now, what makes us think about something uh, is is more uh, elaborate in in caste, whereas it looks as if that is not so elaborate when it comes to race and class. Uh, this derivation, in that sense. Uh, I was arguing that uh, Ray, the derivation of race from caste is not analogical, sociological, or historical, but but it uh, uses something called the metaphysical rationalism. Now, I understand metaphysical rationalism as something that allows us to look at causation as a connection between concept and inherence. In other words, caste is a primary concept and race is a historical expression or accident, and that concept produces the effect but in a more vitalistic sense, not in a logical sense. And uh, the, the existential work on caste today that is being uh, done by uh, uh, Guru and others seem to be about expressing this uh, existentialist uh, uh, sense of caste. And, that, uh, and I think that's a very important character uh, that also seeps into her work. What attracted me uh, most about Isabel's work was the way she conflated, you know, uh, these two terms. Now, it, uh, race is subsumed by caste, but not by way of spatial and historical historical containment, but but more by a theory of causation where the concept of caste inheres to the concept of race. You know, normally uh, the understanding is how do how does something uh, subsume? It, it should be either spatial or historical. It is neither spatial nor historical in that sense. And uh, I would end uh, uh, this uh, my brief presentation uh, with a quote of uh, uh, Wilkerson, where she says, a race in the United States is a visible agent of the unforeseen force of caste. 
Cast is the bones, raise the skin. Thank you. Thank you, Thiru, uh, for your very, very, very complex presentation. Uh, so, uh, I would like to thank Thiru uh, for, for implicating me into the discussion and along with Sundar Sarukai. But we will keep that for, for another occasion. Uh, but, you know, I think both of you uh, have done a wonderful job of actually bringing out very complex formulations that uh, Isabel Wilkinson has done in her book. Uh, uh, your, your pieces in EPW actually raise uh, very uh, fundamental issues about how to deal with the interrelationship between caste and race. And I don't want to summarize your arguments. So they are actually distinctly different. Uh, at some level, they also overlap. For example, uh, the, the treatment that it, Isabel is giving to uh, to Brahmanism and Nazism uh, and Brahm white supremacy and Nazism has been brought in by both of you. Uh, but uh, uh, so uh, there are interesting points through you are making in your write up that what is the one is the divine uh, epistemology of human mind, which is not fully explored in your piece, but that you can do, do uh, later. And, and secondly, you also have done. Uh, uh, made a reference to metaphysical rationalism. You have, you have made some specific references to it in your deliberation today. Uh, but also there is some more need to really reflect on that. And so this is, uh, but this, and you were, you were, you were, you were, you were reading of the book, the style of the book uh, is, uh, uh, is the, the, the performative force of uh, uh, the telling uh, compels people to listen to. So uh, the Levinasian says, you know, if you don't have ethics of listening, that book that that book will compel you to listen to. As uh, Srivatsan's confession in the beginning actually brought it forth. Uh, so uh, uh, this is the power of the uh, autobiographical uh, narratives that have that uh, that are there in in even Wilkinson's book as well. And you have a similar text in Marathi where you can. Really, uh, your, your autobiographical narratives actually bring a, a kind of a very, very performative force on somebody who refuses to listen to the narratives that are not a part of somebody's existential uh, uh, life. So, uh, uh, so we, to that extent, I think uh, uh, Wilkinson's book actually goes beyond uh, making connections with uh, literature, which is available in mother tongue, or uh, if you if you want to use that term vernacular i mean i don't want to use the word term vernacular because it also belongs to colonialism it's a colonial legacy so we actually very very purposefully consciously avoid certain terminology now uh, srivatsan's book act uh, the write-up is very very detailed and he has brought in many uh, important uh, insights but the important point that srivatsan is making is uh, in his in his uh, writer in EPW is that you know uh, what is what is the basis of truth? What is how do we foreground truth? Truth through hermeneutics, truth with communication. No, truth is actually uh, can be accessed through narrative. So what is is what what Isabel is saying is that you know truth actually is there in what one is saying. Truth is there when what what is what what one is doing to to the victim, for example, in this matter. So saying and doing are two important uh, uh, you know, epistemic or ontological basis of truth. 
basically ontological basis of truth. The language, the language you use actually already carries uh, the element of truth in it. So that is evident in that particular book by Samuel Wilkinson. Uh, so there are other points as well. Srivatsan uh, 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 hasn't really differed with her. He has differed with uh, her in, in his uh, in, in his right of any better book. Thiru, Thiru doesn't really uh, disagree with her, but this is uh, this is my reading of your work, uh, your your piece in EPW. So uh, I think my let, let me make two points. Uh, one point is that you know uh, if if white is the problem and skin is a problem ideologically understood uh, skin is a problem so can you really uh, actually insulate uh, separate the being from the skin uh, otherwise you know that white uh, that the white will always carry the burden of skin and there will be no liberation of the white and this is historically untrue if you read uh, the text by uh, Du Bois and Ambedkar, you will always say that look here, Irsavella has to actually go into the history of thought and find out the connections. This is the point number one. Point two is that you know the level of liberalism that is operative in our country and their country actually uh, makes the access accessibility possible. Uh, so to that extent also you will find that Isabella is much more forthful uh, about America than India. And uh, point three is that how does one really, uh, 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 sh- uh, how does one understand uh, the correct, uh, the, the, the privileges, the, the, how does one understand the category caste enjoying privilege of elaboration over race? Uh, this is by uh, the very admission of the author Wilkinson. Now I think we we just cannot understand two phenomena which already emerge in one, one historical particularity uh, by actually pitting uh, one against another as the more fundamental category. Uh, you require a more metaphysical language to understand the very authenticity of these categories exists in that historical social context. And, and therefore, I think possibly taking them around the world in, in combination together would be uh, would be actually uh, if, uh, protocol-wise would be epistemologically unfair. So I think these three points we should discuss if you really want to discuss them. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. I, I just want to make a comment. Uh, it's uh, just to reiterate uh, one of the points that I was making about the generative power. And that uh, generative power, as uh, uh, Professor Guru was saying, cannot be uh, reduced to uh, some kind of a language uh, uh, of, a, of, a, of, a, of a conceptual language. It needs a metaphysical, uh, that the force of existence of caste or the force of existence uh, when it relates to class or race uh, that is the difference in which, uh, and that force of existence uh, has no way that we can comprehend within the uh, the usual disciplines that uh, we currently have, and we need a language that uh, uh, that that can capture this uh, force of existence. Yeah, yeah, Srivatsan. I would actually put together what uh, Professor Guru and Professor Truman are saying. 
and say that uh, if I read right, if I heard you rightly, the deadness of the notion of caste in the discussion in India is because it is so totally encased by institutional mechanisms and structures which make it almost inescapable. And uh, what Wilkerson seems to be doing by talking across about caste and the whole book is a metaphor about oppression in the US. You know, Kwame Anthony Appaya says she's a master of extended math metaphor. And he mentions the first chapter where he talks about the, uh, the tundra ice and from that the emergence of disease and all that. But the whole book, in her talking about caste, she's actually talking about how to rethink race in a different way. And it, the force of an autobiographical narrative and the skill of a, you know, it's kind of Pulitzer Prize winning journalism. She's not a simple writer. She's right there at the top of the best journalistic writers and the and book writers and thinkers in the US. It's all these which actually break that deadening case hardening which is there in the Indian context. It may be useful to see that that uh, breaking of the genre and the I mean, undoubted skill with which she does it, which really is to me. And that is, of course, built on her personal experience. It's that co particular combination, that particular singular combination that gives us this strength. So I just thought I'll make that uh, comment about her. Yeah, I think I, I agree with you, Srivatsan, that, you know, uh, we are uh, actually constructed ourselves into a... There's a, there is a kind of a closure that we are imposed on ourselves, uh, uh, some kind of intellectual closure that we want to talk to people and we don't want to talk to people who don't want to listen to us. So there's a, there is a collective closure that we are imposed. Uh, and, and, and this is not the case in the U.S., uh, 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 I, I, that's why you can see uh, the promise of uh, 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 black studies. Uh, uh, I am not very sure whether uh, the uh, phenomenon of black studies has already arrived. But Dalit studies has never arrived so far. We are just making rhetorical announcement that, it, that there is nothing Dalit studies. And I have been making this point for a very long time because you know, we, have, uh, we have not produced sufficiently uh, uh, the uh, the background conditions uh, uh, that are necessary for uh, uh, creating and expanding the social and intellectual base of what you are saying, uh, which is not the case in the U.S. You know, you just find uh, uh, the uh, uh, the black people actually excelling in many fields, and you can see Anthony Apaya's huge uh, intellectual career. And, uh, and I'm happy that he has responded to Isabella Wilkinson's book. Uh, so, but, but we, uh, we don't have that kind of a tradition. Uh, 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 and we are actually, we, we have, but we have a very weak traditions. We, we do not really share uh, our own intellectual uh, thought. We do not share our, our, even our weaknesses. Uh, we actually guard them against uh, any kind of attack from outside. So I think this is a self-defeating exercise. That's why the deadening of discussion 
actually has to do something with uh, our unwillingness to uh, to really uh, expand the frontiers of discussing. That's why I think the word uh, Thiru has used is very important. The 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 uh, the, the uh, what he says is that the force of existence of caste actually has to have some other conceptual vocabulary uh, that is not at the moment available in the disciplinary discourses in India. And which is true, that's why I mean in our, our own work, uh, with, uh, I and Sundar have worked on, and so we are trying to say something which is, uh, uh, which is, which is different, if not new, uh, from what is available in the uh, social science humanities uh, uh, disciplines. So what we really require is the, uh, the point that you're raising, uh, Srivatsan, is this, that you know, if Isabel is actually using caste as a metaphor, so uh, we have to take a further step and say then find out how is metaphor used by her to actually explain uh, and expand uh, the conceptual force of the race and caste. And for that, we require something else. Uh, we require to really put in the content uh, 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 in the elaboration of caste, how is caste elaborated? Not as a, uh, not as a, not simply as a narrative, or a, or a, an empirical description, but actually, if it is historical moment of race and caste as a category, it has to go through conceptually. The conceptual journey is unavoidable. So, what are the resources that are available to actually make experience of caste and race into a conceptual category that can be then tightly organized? into a form of a theory and take the whole thing around and and then and, and disturb people with this. So this is what uh, is important, I think. And so I think it will open up ways to uh, imagine Dalit studies and, uh, and, and, and at least the Dalit studies. I, I think black studies, of course, is on the, on the verge of emergence. Except to reiterate uh, what uh, both my senior colleagues have been saying that uh, uh, there's a lack of uh, vocabulary and uh, lack of uh, uh, commitment to developing that vocabulary in the uh, in the portals of academia where we're working and in those uh, institutions that we uh, you know breathe and and uh, do our work. Uh, so that labor seems to be under. I mean, it, it's not a labor that's appreciated. It's a labor that's uh, count uh, uh, very much. So. I wish uh, we uh, were more open to it uh, in mm. the coming days for the next generation. You know, I think, uh, you know, we have no doubt of people actually writing about caste and race. Yeah. Actually, they are they are actually going for easy uh, overlap right. uh, at the international level. But right. it's not that this is a, I mean, it's a oversimplified version of the intellectual relationship between the two. I mean, yeah. that is, that is uh, much more attractive than doing a serious work. I mean, we don't yeah. want to endure our uh, the moment of arguments. The mo arguments may not really come forward. They would not uh, be discernible immediately, and it will take a long time for them to become discernible. But we are in such yeah. a great hurry uh, to yeah. make e easy connections between the two. And this is one trend. The other trend is yeah. actually to uh, see in every, uh, every uh, theme, the relationship of caste and race, for environmentalism, caste and race, yeah, literature, yeah. caste and race. But this is something very, very oversimplified. Yeah. I mean, you must give a very serious treatment to uh, uh, to, to the the, the right. relationship between the two. And as you have done in your pieces in EPW, I think that's why I yeah. think I, I took 
great care while reading both of uh, both of you uh, in epw pages i think if you can really pick up something from there it will be yeah. uh, it will be a certain beginning is a sure beginning yeah. of actually approaching uh, not simply uh, uh, superficially uh, producing a some kind of overly appetite that for whatever reasons i don't want to go into the reason as to why right. people are so right. hyperactive on uh, right. taking uh, yeah. uh, so what is that vocabulary metaphysical level what is that vocabulary yeah. that can really bring this two together yeah. and in the mode of emancipation yeah. that's more important question that we have to raise yeah. Yeah. see i think one of the problems also is that the academic and disciplinary discourse is a reflective ones mm. they, yeah. they reflect on experience they are not experiential mm. and uh, there have been some writers such for example fuko for example uh, some other people who have really moved into this uh, performative semi existential dimension of writing in in the academia in the manner in which they wrote and the results they achieved have been stunning mm. uh, i think I don't know. One has to figure out what we don't. We shouldn't copy that transformation. We should figure out what the transformation required in our own reflective discourse to be able to handle this with the verve and strength it requires. And I'm just kind of repeating what you're saying, and you know, that's the point. Yeah, I mean, if you go to any bookstore, bookshop in the U.S. you will find uh, uh, racks of uh, books written by the black scholars and uh, uh, i think uh, uh, and they are the result of the critical engagement with each other on the one hand and critical engagement with others i mean i mean the white scholars or that who are also very do we also that you know uh, very ethical ear to l- listen to you uh, so that's the here we have uh, we, we, our, we are actually sluggish in terms of uh, we are we are starting but we are sluggish in this you know yeah. uh, that is melancholic uh, uh, part of it yeah yes sir if i may add another prompt we have spoken a lot about a problematic way of understanding the overlap between caste and race but perhaps we have not spoken enough about class and how that features here I was wondering if anyone would like to bring the ca- the class angle in. <coughs> Maybe Sri Vastan can say something. I had said a bit about class in the presentation. If you you know listen to it, you'll probably hear it. But uh, see, class seems to be a much more is a much more recent phenomenon than uh, caste or race, and it's. and it becomes a self conscious category through the practices and from from the practices the theorization which marx and engels actually bring about in terms of class as making a dichotomy in the world between the ruling and the ruled classes the oppressed and the oppressor classes now it seems that in general the class structure is based on what is called a free market but what marx and engels explain time and again is that you enter the laborer enters the market free to sell labor power but the moment 
that laborer enters the workplace, the laborer is a slave. You know, there's a certain kind of almost wage slavery which is going on. And the extent of a, you know, extraction of life itself from the laborer is shown in the struggles to increase the working day and to decrease the working day and all that. So there's uh, that dimension, that uh, elasticity and that dimension and the empty promise of actually getting out of this wage slavery on the basis of which the whole system works. And that is suited to capitalism. So, how actually they all work together, it's all very mobile. You can't say it's exactly the same. With race, it works one way, it works, it works with race one way at one place, differently at another place. That's what I've seen. Capitalism is very, very, it's like a chameleon. It's very mobile. It, you know, I would think. And so, how class cuts is something which is, you have to check in each case and see. There's no ready way of doing it. All it's also very clear that everything you do about you know caste or race or ethnicity or any of them is not going to solve the class problem immediately. But that's a, another huge struggle altogether. That's what I to repeat what I was saying. Yeah, I, I yeah. I, I thought I'd bring in another dimension uh, of ca- of class, uh, which is uh, not the uh, problem that uh, Srivats is raising, but one of what happens to caste when you also a middle class. Uh, so uh, I'm working on a project uh, uh, of looking at the status of Dalit women, rural Dalit women in uh, uh, in, uh, in Telangana and uh, there is this instance of uh, a Dalit woman complaining about an OBC not complaining, lamenting that uh, she holds a lower position in a small organization where they work the, the OBC woman but the OBC woman wouldn't eat in her house uh, so uh, they both are wage laborers actually, I mean there is not, not much of a difference and uh, the kind of uh, Things that uh, uh, many, I, I haven't read many of these autobiographies of uh, uh, officials, Dalit officials who write, but all of them seem to have gone through a certain erosion of uh, their self-esteem and self-worth in executing their uh, their task. And uh, if, 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 if arriving at a class would mean a certain erosion of your dignity, of your sense of worth, uh, I was wondering what's the meaning of uh, arriving at uh, at the class, and uh, this is something that Isabel works very, very well in a book. You know, she goes to a boutique, and that fellow refuses to look at her. She wants to write about the boutique, and the boutique owner says, uh, "Well, uh, I don't know who you are," and she shows her uh, card, ID card, and says, "So what if you're working for New York Times? I don't want to talk to you." And, uh, you know, she has to come out of that place. And it's, it's on the face. And I'm sure it happens in, in, our, in a far more complex manner in, in our context. So uh, what's the meaning of this middle class in terms of uh, uh, what do you... Uh, discrimination is something that uh, I find resonance in uh, Isabel's work as well. 
Yeah, I think it, since you have, you have brought this category of class into the discussion, I think one has to reflect on this. You know, we just can't escape it. You know, I mean, there are. I mean, now that uh, the one of the criticism after the fall of Soviet Union was that you know, it is because you know you people Marxists have really overtaxed the category of caste. Now, over a period of time, because of the nature of capitalism, you find that uh, uh, the category of class has actually lost its integrity. Uh, uh, and its concreteness, because the uh, the mode of uh, production uh, and the relationship have undergone a change. For example, this kind of capitalism has produced an informal sector, and that makes it exceedingly difficult to define uh, uh, class as an actually analytically integrated category. So you just can't really. It was it was possible earlier, but now it is it is difficult. So uh, so uh, it so it is. Uh, Class, they say, has become a residual category because it doesn't really have uh, uh, the necessary uh, definitional conditions uh, that can really provide it a kind of a very coherent uh, conceptual content. So that's the that's the problem. Uh, uh, but we will discuss that. Where well, has it disappeared completely out of? Is it is nowhere now, not among the blacks even. So there is class among the blacks. Because there are people who are, uh, there is an internal differentiation. So you, can you really use yeah. Marxist category to understand that? No. But there is another person, another scholar, another thinker whose name is uh, Max Weber. And Max Weber would be much more relevant here to understand this new forms of, I mean, it has been there to understand class as the status group. And so that status actually is, it, it, it cuts across the uh, ethnic groups, caste and race. So you will find uh, uh, a person, uh, uh, Thiru's example of Telangana women, the, the, the status-wise, social status is different, therefore they can't belong to the same class. Uh, they, they, are, they belong to different class. Uh, so that, that is a major problem in our, uh, in our, in our country, to actually neatly, uh, neatly precisely define what is, what is class. Uh, and the debate has been very, very rich in our country. Caste class, EPW actually carried so much, uh, so much, uh, so much with so much of force. Some, you know, in the in the, in the early eighties and and late seventies. So, uh, so it is it is there. And I don't know, uh, 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 can we really summon class as a major organizing category into our imagination? Yeah. I don't have any concrete answer at this point in time. Yeah. 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 No, I must thank both the scholars for having accepted our invitation to share their views on this podcast. And uh, I thank them for writing for EPW and also joining us in this podcast. I must say, thank you for the privilege of joining. It is a privilege. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. <laughs> thank you, sir. <laughs> thank you, Professor Thirumal. Thank, thank you, sir. Professor Srivatsan. Thank and you. thank you, Professor Guru. Thank you. Thank you to all our listeners for joining us. And to see the image that Professor Srivatsan mentioned, head over to the show notes at etw.in slash podcast, where you can also find other episodes of Research Radio. And to experience all that EPW has to offer, subscribe to EPW today. Bye-bye and see you next time.